0: Welcome to Snack Break. We speak to experts, mostly about policy, but also about snacks. Negotiation happens at all levels of life in politics, from more individual decision-making like buying a car or asking for a raise, to high politics like confronting North Korea's nuclear program, resolving the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, and striking multilateral trade agreements. Negotiation has developed significantly as an academic field over the last few decades. What do we know, and what else have we yet to explore? Today, we're pleased to have Dr. Bob Manukin, the Samuel Williston Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, the chair of its program on negotiation, and the director of the Harvard Negotiation Research Project. This year, Bob has written two books. The first is a co-author of Kissinger the Negotiator, Lessons from Dealmaking at the Highest Level, and second, The Jewish American Paradox, Embracing Choice in a Changing World. Bob, thank you so much for joining.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: Now my first question is, uh, seriously, what were you thinking writing two books in a single year?
1: (laughs) Well, first of all, it it took me much more than a single (laughs) year. Uh, The uh, Kissinger book, uh, Nick Burns and I uh, worked with Jim Sabinius, and Jim was really the primary author of that book, although we obviously were deeply involved. That book is part of a broader project in which we're interviewing all the living secretaries of state about their most important negotiations. That book rose out of this project because after we interviewed Kissinger, Jim had the idea, why don't we, in fact, write a book about what Kissinger's, what the most important lessons that might be derived from Kissinger's remarkable experience as a negotiator. The Jewish-American paradox. is a strange book for me to have written the following sense: I'm mm-hmm. not a Jewish studies guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, You're a law professor. I'm a law professor, exactly. And uh, like you, I grew up in Kansas City. Wonderful place. Great place, and I hope we can talk about that. Uh, and my, one of my daughters, like the children of many of my friends, intermarried with our complete blessing. And so I have a grandchild Believe it or not, named Cornelius Alcott VI. <laughs> now, needless to say, we call him Eli. His yeah. uh, father and grandfather and great grandfather and grandmothers were not raised Jewish. as Jews. <laughs> and part of me realized that I really hoped that he'd grow up to have a Jewish identity. And I asked myself, what's that all about? Uh, why, as someone who's not religiously observant did I have these rather deep feelings. And so this book is part memoir, but also explores what I see as the challenges facing the American community.
0: Well, I'm really excited to talk about both of these books. Uh, the, uh, but before we get to that, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about negotiation as a field. I mean, you were Great. part of its development, its, its start really academically in a serious sense um, in, uh, several decades ago. What have been some of the greatest revelations uh, in the field, uh, in the interdisciplinary study of
1: negotiation? Well, what's marvelous about negotiation is today, it's both taught and seriously studied in universities. Uh, When I went to Harvard Law School, there were no courses on negotiation. Uh, As an undergraduate here at Harvard College, I was very influenced by a course I took from Thomas Schelling, I was an economics major and very interested in strategic interaction. Uh, All kinds of disciplines have studied negotiations, history, political science, you know, to name a couple Mm -hmm. conspicuous ones. Lawyers negotiate all the time, whether it's deal making on the one hand or conflict resolution on the other. But it's really only in the last 30 or 40 years that within universities it's been taken seriously as a field, and in the professional schools particularly, it's now taught. I know you're at the Kennedy School, there are negotiation courses at the Kennedy School, Mm -hmm. as there are at the business school and the law school. So the, the greatest
0: developments are that it is just considered now a field in its own right, whereas before it was kind of a side project, or what was it?
1: Well, I think that in fact there weren't many people before who were specializing in. Mm-hmm. It's inherently interdisciplinary. And I say that because it involves extremely complicated behavior, and there's no single model that captures it all. Yeah. I mean what I love about the field uh, is that game theory and strategic interaction is important. Other aspects of economics dealing with principal agent problems are relevant and all sorts of psychology, it's extremely relevant. Social psychology, uh, cognitive psychology, how people think about it and evaluate risk, all of this is relevant. Do you have a favorite
0: fact or tactic of negotiation or something that you just love, that you discovered over the course of the last several decades?
1: I don't have a favorite tactic at all, but I mean what I've really devoted much of my career to is trying to think through conceptually how do you best describe and explain the challenges of negotiation. And my own view is that negotiation requires the management of certain tensions that are quite inherent in the process. I've also studied, which was begun at the time I was at Stanford with economists and psychologists, the various barriers to negotiation. I've been particularly interested in the question, why under circumstances when parties could make themselves better off through a negotiated resolution, do negotiations fail? And once again, a variety of disciplines can give you insight into that.
0: Is there something that you're so that you're surprised that humans still do or that continue to do that uh, that 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 increase the likelihood of that failure?
1: I think I'm not sure surprise is the right word, but um, let me explain one of the three tensions that I think is at the core of a lot of negotiations. Uh, I'm very committed to the notion that through negotiation, parties can often expand the pie. They can make deals that create efficiency. Uh, Many people go into negotiations thinking it's a zero-sum game. What you win, I lose. What I win, you lose. When we're teaching negotiation at the law school, for example, we beat up on them pretty unmercifully because we want them to understand that it's often possible to make deals where the pie's expanded. On the other hand, other people think that if people would just be nice to each other, if you'd behave decently, distributive issues disappear. You and I could start a partnership where because we have complementary skills, we can create a lot more valuable together in our partnership than we could separately. Nonetheless, we're still going to have the issue of how are we going to divide the profits.
0: So the slice of the pie matters.
1: Slicing the pie matters. But also, you can make it bigger. But you can make it better and and bigger.
0: That's the the tension.
1: And that is exactly the tension. Uh And the tension flows from the fact that to create value, you often want to communicate a great deal about your underlying interests and resources. Mm -hmm. But if you are naive about how you do that, you can get exploited with respect to the distributive aspect of a bargain. I can give you a simple example. Um, One example that's often used in negotiation to explain why it's important to disclose your interests is a story about two brothers fighting about an orange. They fight over the orange. They both want the whole orange. They finally, in disgust, agree to cut it in half. After they cut it in half, their relationship, by the way, has now been completely spoiled by the fight. Oranges do that. Oranges do that. Apples as well. (laughs) One brother uh, takes the orange, walks away from his brother, scoops out the fruit, eats the fruit, throws the peel away. Mm-hmm. The other brother goes home, scoops out the fruit, throws it down the garbage disposal and takes the, the skin, the, the, uh, the, the peel and thinly slices it to flavor uh, some kind of... cream on your tort. Exactly. And obviously, that's a very inefficient outcome. They resolved it, but they could have done it in a more better way. The, 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 therefore, the is. You should have shared what your underlying interests Mm -hmm. were, why you wanted it. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I can tell a second story. If you and I are on a desert island, I've got an apple orchard. You've got an orange grove.
0: That sounds pretty good.
1: And uh, I uh, say to you, uh, I think we ought to trade some of my apples for your oranges. We both could be better off. You say to me, I'm all ears. And I say, well, the truth is, I've got all these apples. Apples give me a stomachache. I don't like them, but I love oranges. Now, in terms of the terms of trade, you may offer me one of your oranges for all of my apples. Because you're not going to have them.
0: So do, I might as well try and get as many. But I've been
1: exploited in right. terms of the distributive aspect because I disclosed too much. Well, I would
0: never do that to you on a desert island.
1: I'm sure you wouldn't. But
0: no, so that gets at that, gets at that tension. That's uh, right. And and it's great because in honor of pies, I baked you oh an apple goodness. pie. A real apple pie. Fantastic. Uh, crust was made this morning. Baked it this morning. I've been working on it since uh, since last night, shall we?
1: Sure. <laughs> okay.
0: How oh do this, are you a, so this is a pretty, this is a pretty deep pie, <laughs> um, and I, so I got to warn you, I don't know what your...
1: A small slice will do me fine. Right, there, is that good? That looks perfect. Now I understand you learned how to make this in Kansas City.
0: I made this in, yes, I, so it's a good story, um, ice cream. Sure, um, so just a little bit, that's great. Uh, um, so I, my one of my, my parents befriended this Italian family, the D'Agostinos, and um, the matriarch of the family. Uh, she used to cook, incidentally, for eleven children, and uh, we were really part of. We kind of integrated with their family. We used to go to their house for Christmas. We're not we're not Catholic, but we used to do it, um, and we used to go over to their house for all sorts of events, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I used to call her Nana. Nana used to make the best blueberry pies. Um, so much so that I, I liked them so much. I I asked her when I was like thirteen. I was like Nana, you know, I would just love to learn how to make this on my own, because I would like to make more more pies than you than you. She used to give them to us frequently, but but I wanted to just you know, yep. take it into overdrive. Um, and so I started learning pies. A year later, two years later, sadly, she passed away. Oh goodness! So it's sort of a you're carrying on the tradition. I'm carrying on the tradition, although there are there are forty cousins who are also carrying on the tradition. I met she had a, she had a very large, it was a very very big family, uh, but yeah, there's some of our closest friends back in Kansas City, and so this is something that I that I took. Well, it
1: gives me. me a huge kick that we share the same
0: high school. Yeah, well, you know, it's it, if you it, it's amazing because had we gone to the same high school in Cambridge or something, I think that would be fine. All right, right. kind of cool, but this is. Kansas City. It's Kansas City. Um, and uh, yeah, so you, what was, this is Pembroke Hill, Here you go, and so what was like, what, what was that like for you?
1: Well, um, I, when I went to Pem, Pem, it was called Pem Day right. then, Pembroke Country Day. Yeah. Uh, there were uh, about 43 guys in my class, it was all boys, mm-hmm. all boys. Uh, I started in eighth grade and uh, it was, it, the quality of the education was superb. Mm-hmm. Uh, my class of 40, I think, had nine or ten uh, national merit semifinalists, finalists uh, and, indeed, the cross-section of kids in my class was uh, extremely able yeah. and very nice.
0: Did that impact your past negotiation at all because were you, like, the one mediating conflict between the bully in the class and the the one who was picked on?
1: I don't think... um, That's an interesting question. Uh, Looking back, uh, I don't... I think I've always been interested in in trying to understand different sides of an argument or a conflict. So in that sense, temperamentally, I be sort beauty. of have a media. I have a mediator's temperament, mm-hmm. and I think, by the way, effective negotiators. I think a critical skill is being able to understand the other person's perspective, being a good listener.
0: Um, Not just listening. I mean, this is the second tension that you mentioned. You mentioned there are three tensions. We right. talked about the first. Second tension, if I recall, is empathy versus assertiveness. Exactly And, empathy right. is and you want to have both. You want to have both You, you because if you're too empathetic, you could also be. Well, you both could be exploited, or you also just might lose your way.
1: Um, you could fall into accommodation. Ah, I see. You see, some people, for example, mm-hmm. it's very important to be able to understand the other person's perspective. Right. Some people, once when they're in conflict with someone, yeah. they understand the other. other they understand mm-hmm. the other person's perspective. They can't hold on to their own interests any longer. They fall into accommodation mode. So it's
0: it's so you gotta you gotta keep in mind you got to stick, stick to your guns somehow while understanding and empathizing. I wonder if this is, is this a version, I mean this is, seems to be related to why like Foreign Service officers mm-hmm. only spend three years or two to three years in a country because if they spend much longer than that they will develop more of a, I mean it's long enough to kind of get a sense of the mm-hmm. other side and um, not just negotiating, but also just dealing with another country.
1: Well, that's a very interesting point. Uh, <clears throat> the great concern about foreign service officers is that they go native. Mm. That is, <clears throat> the good thing is they develop a very deep understanding mm-hmm. of this other culture. Right. Uh, the bad news would be is if they can't nonetheless hang on to what the underlying American United States, States interests might be, but I think the the best foreign service people do do both. Yeah.
0: So I want to I want to talk to you about your the Kissinger book very briefly because I want to spend I want to spend the rest of our time on the, on the Jewish American paradox. Um, the Kissinger the negotiator. I've actually been lucky to spend time talking to your to co-author uh, Jim Savenius. Uh, we had a conversation mm-hmm. uh, a couple months ago about it. Uh, but your biggest kind of takeaway from this book, from writing this book, uh, was what? I was told by a, by a friend, or a mentor really, uh, a few days ago, she was giving advice and said, you know, the best way to learn a subject is to write a book about it. Mm. Um, what did you learn
1: most from writing that book? A theme we developed in the book is that Kissinger had a remarkable ability to do what we call, and Jim perhaps talked about this, both zoom out Mm -hmm. and put a particular negotiation with a particular country in a much broader context of what's going on throughout the world and broadly what he viewed as the challenges in the world order. On the other hand, he also had a great ability to zoom in And that is, in a particular negotiation, if he were negotiating with you, he would learn a great deal about your background, your culture. Uh, He'd be very good at reading you during the negotiation. Many negotiators have one or the other, but they don't have both. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, for example, many of our secretaries of state have not had the breadth of vision that Kissinger did, in terms of the
0: world order. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, this kind of relates. I, you mentioned that that uh, that you're not a religious, a Jewish studies scholar. You right. are not. Have not spent your life studying religion, and you wrote this book, part memoir, part history, part analysis, culture, cultural commentary. Uh, to me, were it, were it related. Actually, I mean, you just mentioned Kissinger. Uh, knew could study, would study the individual, could right. know where they were coming from. Well, a right. big part of that to me is people have their interests, you know, if they're okay. negotiating on behalf of a country, they know those countries' interests, uh, but they also have their identities. And right. That feels to me like a really important driver. Uh, I mean, we're and we're living in an age of, an age of identity, um, of heightened sense of um, self-identification. And so, so what, so it didn't actually feel that strange to me.
1: Well, um, good for you. Well, I, it's not, uh, An irony is, when I was working on this project, the title I had in my mind was Negotiating Jewish Identity in Contemporary America. Mm -hmm. And the publisher, I'm blessed with a wonderful publisher, it's uh, it's called Public Affairs, Mm -hmm. Peter Osnos began the imprint, it's now part of Hachette. But uh, Peter didn't like the title, nor, <laughs> did his, title. No, nor did his marketing colleagues, oh, really? because they, he, he said negotiating identity. People don't negotiate their identities. And in fact, I think people do negotiate well, I think their
0: it's identities. a conflict resolution that happens inside. inside all the time. Right? Isn't Absolutely. That the, you tell a story of uh, Eric Erickson. Exactly. Uh, Madeleine Albright. Um, there's some really good stories in there about how they were negotiating. They were presented with information, or at least That's in right. Madeleine Albright's case, but with
1: Eric, a different sort of situation. No, uh, no. It, I, I think I, I'm not a an identity essentialist, and that is, I don't think any of us are just one thing. Mm-hmm. You're not just someone from Kansas City. You're not just a, a PhD student from the Kennedy School. Right. Those things may be aspects of your identity, but there are a lot of other aspects too. Right. And you know, I think about my own identity. Some of them relate to roles as a. Uh, A parent, a grandparent, a husband. Uh, uh, Some of them are related to professional roles that I'm interested in dispute resolution, that I'm a law professor. Another strand in my identity is I take pride in my Jewish heritage. These various strands can have different levels of importance for individuals during their life. They're not fixed, mm-hmm. and I think one is often negotiating, you know, what what's more important to you and why. Yeah. I mean, for example, given our age now, a person's, particularly for women, uh, their gender uh, is a profoundly important part of their identity. Uh, and uh, Sexual orientation for many people is a big part of, yeah. of their
0: identity. It, it, it felt to me there were two parts to this. One part was was coming to terms with how, why you felt strongly about uh, Jewish your Jewish heritage and Jewish identity, uh, and you kind of came to it, as you say, pretty late in life with the birth of your grandchildren. Uh, it was kind of igniting that. Spark. I didn't
1: come to it, but I tried, I attached more importance Wait, to President, it. George, exactly right.
0: Um, and the other element of this book is about what the Jewish community in the United States, how they should self-define. That's right. What it should mean to be
1: uh, a reformed Jew. Or, or, or how do you, do, who should count as Jewish in America? Right. I mean, that's a question that I... Is that spe- the paradox? What is the paradox exactly? Okay. There are a couple, there, but the big paradox is there's never been a nation in the, the 2000 year history of the Jewish diaspora, there has never been a nation in which Jews uh, were more accepted, uh, uh, have greater opportunity, Mm -hmm. and are more integrated into the society than in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's just stunning uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, within the community, there's great anxiety uh, that it's going to all disappear. That except for the ultra-Orthodox, no one else is going to retain their identity. Now, in fact, I think the community does face uh, certain challenges, but I, I think that diversity and variety of the American Jewish community is something I think is fantastic. I, I like the diversity and variety. And uh, I think there are challenges that, that the community faces. This is not the
0: non—you know—people being less religious. They're being Exactly.
1: Uh, now. And your solution,
0: which I want to talk about, you—you you mention it's the big tent solution. Right. It's like how does how does the Jewish American community deal with this issue of all these trends that are um, that are happening? That's right. Um, you know, fewer believing in God, fewer participating, and you have this in big, the religious life. In the religious life, excuse yes. me. Yes. You know, this is a big tent
1: idea. What is that? Well, my idea is it is is as follows that in America, people express their being Jewish in a remarkable range of ways. Some involve, obviously practicing Judaism as a religion. And for many, uh, that's uh, important and, and, and very nourishing for others. Um, They they take great pride in uh, various forms of uh, uh, Jewish philanthropy, in uh, Jewish film festivals, uh, in creating uh, museums to remember the Holocaust, uh, in a variety of activities, many of which may not be explicitly Jewish but are informed by what they see as their Jewish values. And I think this is terrific too. And my idea of the Big Tent is in terms of who should count as a Jew, uh, I think that for the American community as a whole, anyone who wants to self-identify as being Jewish and, and being part of the enterprise, I say welcome. I don't care who your mother was, Uh, whether your mother or your father was Jewish. I don't care whether you have religiously converted. You don't even care if they believe in God. I don't care if they believe in God. See, one thing that's, by the way, very paradoxical is I, I have a chapter about this. I said, well, being Jewish, why shouldn't it require that you're committed to Judaism as a religion? Right. And it turns out Judaism has no catechism of required beliefs. I mean, there are beliefs that are at the core of the religion. But nowhere does it say, unlike for Catholicism or Islam, where if you don't believe these things, you can't call yourself right. a Catholic yeah. uh, or an Episcopalian yeah. uh, or a Muslim. Uh, that's not true in Judaism.
0: It, and it was also uh, <laughs> incredible. You grew up with a Christmas tree. Yes. And and that's also something that you're as a secular, as a secular, yeah, which yes. I actually, incidentally, so did I. Uh, for so did my dad. Weirdly, can he grew up in in. Uh, in India, um,
1: and um, and that was his background Hindu, or uh, yes. So loosely, we were we were we were
0: raised very uh, loosely. We we went to ceremony or you know, right. you know holidays once or twice, a couple times a year to the temple, and uh, we had books and things in our right. um, and, uh, about it. But we were, it was your you know, cultural heritage. Yes, was cultural heritage. But we from ages whatever I don't know probably zero though I don't remember it until I was maybe seven, six, seven, we had a Christmas tree. Right. A horrible little thing. I mean, but right. it was part of, just because you get in the mood. It's the holiday season. Yeah, holiday season. So that's something also that's changed. What I was interesting was, you you mentioned that that when you were a kid, that was okay right. as part of the Jewish community to have that culture. Well, part of the,
1: many Reform, Reform Jews, Jews did. There have always been those within the community, right. and it, probably more today than before. I've actually, in the process of writing an op-ed, yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 saying that now that intermarriage is so common mm-hmm. in the American uh, uh, Jewish world. Um, since the year 2000, for example, 58% of all Jews who have married have married non-Jews. Mm-hmm. But it turns out a very, more than half of those, it appears, are raising their children as Jews, even though typically mm-hmm. the non-Jewish spouse is not converted. They haven't converted, but nonetheless, they are embracing the ideas that the children would be should be raised Mm -hmm. uh, in the Jewish tradition. I think that's fantastic. Many of these households will have a Christmas tree and celebrate both Hanukkah and Christmas. Mm -hmm. I think that's fine. Well, this
0: is intensely interesting. The the book, again, is is The Jewish American Paradox, Embracing Choice in a Changing World. Uh, Bob Minucan, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Great fun. This episode of Snack Break was produced with the help of the Media Production Center, Hauser Studio, Tara Kavanaugh, and Harris Passeltiner. Introduction music was composed by Evan Fennessy. To learn more about the show or watch episodes rather than listen to them, find us on YouTube or visit our website at snackbreakshow.com.